listening to the Bible 126 show. Hi, I'm Ron Matson, and welcome to Learn the Bible in 24 Hours with Dr. Chuck Missler. Chuck will be taking you through some interesting oversights of the Bible and showing you some amazing facts. For more information on how you can join this group, click here. Well, we are now in hour 24 of our Learn the Bible in 24-Hour project, which is basically just an opportunity to come to some conclusions, take a broad review of what we've covered over the last 24 sessions, the last 23 sessions. We obviously have gone through the entire Old Testament, starting with the Torah, then through the historical books, the poetical books, major and minor prophets. And uh, as we did, we generally did try to Uh, develop a broad perspective on the one hand, and yet I tried as we went along to pick up a few of the details. The truth is in the details. You may recall we noted that if you take every 49th letter in the book of Genesis it spells the the name Torah, interestingly enough. If you do the same thing in Exodus, the first Tau, and the first Vav, first Resh, every 49 letters again spells Torah. In Leviticus it doesn't happen. In Numbers, of course, it does, but backwards of all things. Same thing with Deuteronomy, you have the equivalent kind of thing occur. And this is a mystery. Why on earth is this here? Is this by accident? I don't think so. Is it by design? I guess so, but what does it prove? Well, Leviticus, let's take another look at Leviticus. We discover that every seventh letter, not seven squared, but every seventh letter, spells out the, the unpronounceable name of God, which the rabbis typically say yad Hey vav Hey or Yehovah, or people have different ways of rendering it, but basically the, the Tetragrammaton. Well now when we stand back from this design, we notice that Torah is spelled forward in the first two books and backwards in the last two books. In Leviticus it, it, it highlights the fact that the Torah always points to the name of God. Now this is not a big deal except it, it's, a, it's a flag to alert us to the fact that underneath the text is design. And these designs are in some cases very profound. We'll touch on a few of those. Very early in our review we talked about the nature of time and we got into the physics of that, but the main point of it is, it is that in our 20th century science heritage we now know that time is a physical property. It varies with mass acceleration and gravity among other things. And that means that we exist in more than three dimensions. In fact the physicists now tell us probably ten dimensions. But the main point is, is that God uses his ability to be outside time altogether to validate his message to us. And if we, we think of time as linear, we think of eternity as starting at infinity on the left, going to infinity on the right. Or putting that in, into our space, if you can visualize this curve as a three-dimensional space, we are in the present, behind us is the past, ahead of us is the future. For us, life is a sequence of events. But to someone who's outside time in eternity, they, he can see the past, the present, and future simultaneously. And this is an attribute of God alone. But he, he uses that to authenticate the message He sends us. He proves it that it's really from Him by writing history before it happens. We call that prophecy in one sense. But we find it also in subtle sense. Much of the Bible makes no sense except as history finally plays out. The brazen uh, uh, serpent is an example of that in Numbers 21. Makes no sense t- until you get to John 3 and so forth. So 
We also talked about the stretch factor of the universe, as it's commonly thought of. Uh, is the universe uh, 15, 16 billion years old, or was it created in six days? And uh, it turns out the expansion factor of 10 to the 12th, which is widely accepted, is in fact simply the same expansion factor uh, if you render it in terms of the mass, the mass of the Earth versus the mass of the universe. You take that ratio, that uh, uh, 6 times 10 to the 12th days is, uh, re renders down to 6 days, if you will. Day 1 goes to... Uh, that's one rendering by Dr. Gerald Schroeder, but there's other considerations. The main point is, I believe, in a six-day um, creation, literal days, because God intends us to understand that, from, not from Genesis, but from Exodus 12, 20, verse 11. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about information measures, the difference between order and disorder, noise and signal, cacophony music, and chaos and cause. These are opposites. On the left we have disorder, we have entropy, which is a way of saying randomness. And on the right we have information. And they're opposites to each other, in a sense. And uh, so they're different. And things are always flowing towards randomness. The universe is winding down. It takes external input to create order or information. And that's, that speaks to, the, to a, 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 a creation, a definitive creation. Uh, the Darwinists cannot explain the origin of life because they can't explain the origin of information. That's really the issue, not the biology of it. We made an entropy profile of the universe, and we noticed that the entropy, randomness is at the bottom, orders at the top in this little diagram. And so we, the word erev speaks of obscurity or disorder, and the word boker of being orderly or discernible, they ultimately come to mean evening and morning. But what we really have is an erev and boker defining the first day of creation, and light was created and so forth. And then we went to the second day, Erev and Boker, and we had the, uh, uh, the, the properties of space emerge. And uh, then we had uh, the land and vegetation. And then we had, uh, on the fourth day, we had the sun and the moon and the stars. And then we had the birds and the fish and so forth. And then we finally had, in the sixth day, uh, animals, Mr. and Mrs. Man, and so forth. What's provocative about this, of course, is in the seventh day, there is no Erev and Boker. There's obviously an evening and morning, but the point is the Erevin Boker, the, the reduction of entropy, the, the insertion of structure and design, had ceased. It was completed at the end of the sixth day. And so the scripture tells us. But then we get to a huge discontinuity, the fall of man in chapter 3, in which we have a decay. We have a, a huge disruption of the original creation. Everything we know about the universe is post-curse. That starts the scarlet thread. God promises that He would redeem the world through the seed of the woman. It's a hint of the, of the virgin birth. It's going to come from mankind. It's going to be a man to do this. In fact, from a specific nation that Abraham is called to do. Jacob, the tribe, and David, the family, and so forth. And so the, as, as the Scripture goes, it sequentially focuses on God's plan of redemption. And as He focuses, God, uh, Satan tries to disrupt it. We even took a look at the Proper names in the genealogy of Genesis 5 and discovered, interestingly enough, that there's a, a sentence. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah are built from Hebrew roots. A man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death, whose death? God's death shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. 
Praise God. So here we have the, a summary of the Christian gospel tucked away in a genealogy in the Torah, astonishingly enough. Well, of course, we got into the fallen angels and the Nephilim and all of that. We talked about Noah's Ark and the realities of it, um, its displacement being uh, equivalent to at least 500, maybe twice that railroad cars, and uh, equivalent space for 125,000 sheep when you've got only about 18,000 species to deal with. It, does, it sounds quite much more comfortable than it does on the face of it. We also covered the reasons why we don't think that Mount Ararat is a in Turkey is a viable site for the ark. It violates what the scripture would tend to argue that they came from the east to Babel, which means that somewhere the ark, the real Mount Ararat, is probably in Iran somewhere, and we will not be surprised if some of the uh, attempts to find it will surface in the coming years. But then we of course talked about the call of Abraham and his family, how he married his half sister and uh, had uh, Ishmael as well as Isaac, and uh, how the, uh, as the family grows and so forth, these relationships are important. He has a nephew by the name of Lot that becomes very prominent in Genesis. We talked about that. Um, under Bethuel we had Rebekah who becomes the bride of Isaac, and uh, from whom we have Esau and Jacob, Esau being uh, the, the forebear of the Edomites, the enemies of Israel. Um, and uh, these, some of these tensions we see in the world today have their roots way back in, uh, in the Genesis time period. And of course also to Bethuel, in addition to Rebecca, you had Laban, and Laban has uh, uh, two, Leah and Rachel, two daughters that marry into Jacob, so we have the, you know, the whole scenario of uh, the patriarchs start to lay out in the book of Genesis that we went through. And uh, so on it goes. But the, under the patriarchs we... Uh, uh, took some time to really understand Abram, uh, and uh, uh, who had a Ishmael through Hagar, not Sarah. Under Sarah, we had Isaac, and uh, un, and uh, who marries Rebecca and has uh, again Jacob. And again, we have the, the key line from which come the twelve tribes. Not only through Leah and Rachel, Leah has the four, and then uh, Rachel gives her handmaid. They have two more, Dan and Naphtali. And then uh, Leah figures, that's a good idea, I'll do the same thing with Zilpah, so there's a couple there. And by this time, uh, Rachel finally has a child, Joseph. And then uh, Leah has two more. And then finally, Rachel has, a, has Benjamin, but dies in childbirth. But the, Rachel is the one, Jacob loved Rachel more than life itself, and so uh, obviously Joseph was very favored, and Joseph becomes the prime minister of the world through the incredible drama that finishes the last few chapters of the book of Genesis. He has two sons and that get adopted by, J by Jacob as he adopts his grandsons as we would call them. So you have 13 potential tribes so you can always have 12 by dropping if you have to drop one out. That relieves a lot of the confusion that comes later. As for the other descendants of Abraham under Esau who marries into, marries with the sons of Ishmael. But it's interesting that ones that are truly Arabs are really sons of Keturah, not even Hagar as well as Sarah. Uh, certainly not Sarah, not, but not even Hagar, interestingly enough. They really come from Keturah. And uh, the, uh, the, from Jokshan we have Saudi Arabia, and from Midian we have the Bedouins and such. So the whole issue of Arabs is an issue. Something else, getting back to some of the subtleties we pointed out as we went through, we noticed that in 49 letter intervals we have a very interesting genealogy tucked away in Genesis 38. We have Boaz in 49 letter intervals, then we have Ruth in 49 letter intervals, and then we have uh, Obed in 49 letter intervals, and then we have uh, 
Ishay or Jesse in 49 letter intervals, and then we have David in 49 letter intervals. And uh, what's pres- astonishing about this, this is Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David in chronological order, centuries before the fact. This is in the book of Genesis. This is uh, long before um, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Moses and all of that. And so uh, yeah, this is the, the chances of this happening. This, I mentioned this, not that it's a big deal, except be aware of the fact that there are discoveries laying just beneath the surface of the text that highlight its supernatural origins. And uh, so the text anticipates the lineage of David several centuries in advance. David did not come as a surprise or an afterthought. That was God's plan from the beginning. And uh, so anyway, we went through the Torah, the book of beginnings. We took the birth of the nation in Exodus. We looked at the book of holiness, the law of the nation, and then we talked about numbers, their wanderings be due to a lack of faith. And then finally Moses' uh, three epistles that make up the book of Deuteronomy, his final, his final review and, and comments on the whole thing before he dies. But um, then we went through the historical books, Joshua and the conquest of Canaan, Judges, the next 300 years where they really snatch uh, defeat out of the jaws of victory by not following through what Joshua had started. And then we have Ruth, um, this incredible little four-chapter book that really reveals to us the role and background of the kinsman redeemer. Very essential when we get to the book of Revelation. Then we had 1 Samuel, the birth of the kingdom, and then for 2 Samuel, the reign of David himself. And then the kingdom divided under Solomon, and then the, the history of that divided kingdom. Chronicles is a review of both of those with special emphasis on David and the southern kingdom. But we have basically the monarchy there from 1 Samuel through to Chronicles. 1 Samuel being the bridge between the judges and the, and the monarchy period. So we went through the whole background of history here with uh, Genesis covering a huge part of history from the creation all the way up to the Exodus. Um, and uh, then the rest of the Old Testament from there through the, the uh, monarchy period. Then four centuries of what they call the silent period. And the New Testament is so different than the Old Testament, it, it occurs in just one lifetime. But boy, what a lifetime it is. And so we uh, have that perspective. The monarchy, of course, was, uh, we went through that rather hurriedly, but uh, the best we could with the time. The, the Saul started with such promise but ended in failure. We had David, who is the key to all things in many respects. And then Solomon, who started well but again failed. It's interesting, you look at Saul or Solomon or many others, finishing well is the name of the game. And uh, so we have uh, the 1st, the 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, sometimes called 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings in some Bibles. But in any case, uh, uh, Elijah uh, uh, being in 1st Kings, Elisha in the 2nd Kings is at the break point there. Chronicles being a repeat of 2nd Samuel through 2nd Kings from the point of view primarily of the southern kingdom. But uh, we went through the prophets, the various prophets that uh, we also, as we went along, saw the building of the temple. We noted the differences between it and the tabernacle that are very profound, but the same basic architecture, of the, uh, but, uh, but adding the, the, the elements of the porch, the, the pillars, and the uh, hidden chambers. And uh, many lessons out of this that we touched upon, and how the, the, the basic tabernacle model. Uh, the body, the soul, the heart, and the spirit seem to be profiled. And seven times in the scripture, God says, ye are the temple of God. What does he mean by that? There are many lessons here that are well amplified by, uh, by uh, 
our little briefing called The Architecture of Man, but perhaps more profoundly by my wife's books, trilogy, The Way of Agape and the books that followed. The fact that the porch is there is our willpower, very key issue. And uh, the, the subconscious being implied by these wooden chambers and so forth. Sounds strange at first, encourage us to review all that. But after the monarchy, we get to the historical books, Ezra, the return from captivity, from the Babylonian captivity, and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and the scene of the da- famous Daniel, the fulfillment of the Daniel 70 weeks, or 69 of the 70 weeks. And uh, between Ezra and Nehemiah actually occur Esther, from which the, uh, fr- uh, the escape the, uh, from being exterminated. Very, very dramatic, dramatic story. Um, we went through the poetical books, not too expositionally too much. We talked about Job, at least in the central points. And uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. The, uh, the messianic details in, in the Psalms are astonishing. You don't think of the Psalms as a, as a book of prophecy, but they really are. They're more than just the hymns. There's an enormous amount of details about Jesus. His person, that He's the Son of God, Son of Man, and Son of David is emphasized by many of them. His offices, prophet, priest, and king, are emphasized by many of them. But his messianic profile is astonishing. He'd speak in parables. He'd calm storms. He'd be despised, rejected, mocked, whipped, derided. He would be impaled on a cross. He'd be thirsty, given wine mixed with gall. Lots cast for his garments. Not a bone would be broken. All these are detailed in the Psalms. With astonishing precision. He'd rise from the dead. He'd ascend to heaven. He'd be at the right hand of God. He's the high priest. He'll judge the nations. His reign would be eternal as the son of God and also the son of David. People would sing Hosanna to him, blessed forever and would come into glory in the last days. So all this is laid there. The coming of His kingdom is mentioned in Psalm 46 through tribulation. The range of His kingdom, all the earth in Psalm 47. The center of His kingdom, Psalm 48. So 46, 47, 48 are a trilogy on the coming range and center of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Well, uh, without going through all the other uh, poetic uh, uh, literature that was in the Bible, we we touched on it, but then we got to the major prophets and what rich, rich material. We spent a whole session just on Isaiah, the Messianic prophet, and then we tried to get most of the others. We spent a special time on Daniel also because he's half half history and half prophets. Twelve key points in Isaiah that uh, he just Isaiah fifty three. He comes in absolute loneliness. He was despised, rejected of men. He suffered for sins in the place of ourselves that God Himself caused the suffering to be vicarious. All these are descriptions not from Paul's epistles, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. His absolute resignation, he opened not his mouth. The description there is astonishing in Isaiah 53. He died as a felon from prison and from judgment. He was cut off prematurely out of the land of the living. He was personally guiltless, no violence nor seat in his mouth. He was to live, after, he was to live on after his sufferings, to prolong his days. And uh, Jehovah's pleasure would prosper in his hand, and so forth. The mighty would triumph after his suffering. By all this God would justify many, the Scripture says. All this is in the Old Testament centuries before, Isaiah 53. And hidden behind the text, within those 12 verses, are the names of the people that are at the foot of the cross. You've got Pharisees, Levites, Caiaphas, Annas, the man Herod, and so forth. And uh, uh, all kinds of to- uh, words that are relevant, but perhaps most astonishing, the disciples that were mourning. Peter, Matthew, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas. Two Jameses, not three, because one was not a believer until after the resurrection. Simon, Thaddeus, Matthias. Three Marys are there, and one of them is entangled with the reference to John and Salome and Joseph. Just amazing. These are encrypted within 12 verses. The people of the cross. What's even more astonishing is a name that should occur statistically, just because of the frequency of the letters, 
um, within that period, uh, that sequence of tests that is conspicuous in its absence. And that's the name of Judas. Well, we got to Daniel, talked about Daniel chapter 2 and the, the strange metallic dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but then also the series of visions that Daniel would have later in his life and how they paralleled with each other, both of them profiling the history of Gentile dominion on the planet Earth right up to the end where it's interrupted by God's own kingdom being set up. And so we went through all of that. And of course we can't zip through even on a summary basis and talk about the book of Daniel even uh, without, or any part of the scripture without pointing out the 69 weeks. This incredible prophecy penned five centuries in advance uh, that was translated into Greek three centuries in advance about uh, that Gabriel tells Daniel the exact day that Jesus would present himself as a king to Jerusalem. Well, the commandment to restore Jerusalem to Messiah the king would be uh, 69 weeks of years. And that turns out to be exactly right to the very day. Getting to Ezekiel, there's all kinds of things in Ezekiel, but of course perhaps most eminent on our horizon is the famous Magog invasion, which could very well happen in, our near, in the near future. Magog and his allies are listed there. It's famous for two reasons. God will intervene on behalf of Israel rather dramatically. And also it appears to describe the use of nuclear weapons. So it's, it's much studied among prophecy buffs today because it, there's an expectation by people in the strategic community that this could be on our near horizon. And uh, each one of these is a study in its right. Then we went to the so-called minor prophets. Not because, not because they're less important, because they happen to be physically smaller. Major and minor are a librarian's categorization, not, not in significance. Hosea talks about the apostasy of the northern kingdom. And his book is an incredible indictment by parallelism with America. Because exactly the predicament of the northern kingdom is very parallel to America and the remedy may be the same. Joel is a major source of information about the day of the Lord, the final climax forthcoming. Amos emphasized the ultimate rule of David. Obadiah talks about the enemies of Israel, the destruction of Edom. But you need to understand that the Edomites is generic for all of Israel's enemies, always has been. And uh, they, they would celebrate any time Israel got, set, got put down. The, word, as you, the more you study the Edomites and the whole history, the more you recognize it becomes a synonym for Israel's enemies. And Obadiah has much to talk about that. And uh, Jonah, of course, is a, was the, the, led to the repentance of Nineveh. And an uh, incredible book and also very relevant to our day. Uh, ten miracles in that book, but the most impressive one is not the fish thing, it's the repentance from the king on down within 40 days that averted judgment. Micah has many things in it, but we know it best probably because of the birth in Bethlehem and so forth. But it also identifies the source of the Antichrist and some other interesting things in Micah. Nahum was also from Galilee to Nineveh, but this, this time Nineveh doesn't repent. In 722 they, get, they disappear from history. And it wasn't, they weren't rediscovered in history until 1849, strangely enough. Many people thought it was just a legend. Habakkuk has many interesting things, mainly about why does God use uh, bad people to even to judge some of the people that aren't where they should be. In other words, um, he's, he's really troubled that, uh, that God will use sometimes very evil people to accomplish his, his uh, judgments. But also in Habakkuk is this plea that the just shall live by faith which becomes the watchword of the Reformation and it's also the subject of a three, three epistles as a trilogy on that subject. And that's why we believe that um, Paul wrote Hebrews. Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians are a, are a trilogy of that. 
Zephaniah has a number of little nuggets, but not the least of which it predicts that not only will Israel be regathered, but when they do they'll speak pure Hebrew. And that sounded preposterous until May 14th of 1948, and obviously uh, the the Hebrew in Israel today is a a, a pure, pure Hebrew. Haggai focuses on the frustrations in rebuilding the temple. Zechariah has all kinds of nuggets about the second coming. So very timely stuff. And then Malachi is the final message to a disobedient people, but he also has a secret revealed in there that's that's the solution to all financial problems. But uh, as you go through the study of these, the the minor prophets, one of the things, we won't take the time to review it in detail now, but to understand that the prophets are not in chronological order. As you study them, try to understand which prophet prophesied under which king. And uh, as, you, as you double back on these things and do your homework, uh, try to r- relate them to the context in which they were prophesying. And uh, so Haggai in the days of Ezra and Zechariah in the days of Nehemiah and of course Malachi at the very, very end. So, And the silent years are profiled for you in advance in Daniel 11. So that's the Old Testament. When you finish the Old Testament, the one thing you're hit with is that there are unexplained ceremonies left, sacrificial rituals that are not explained. You have unachieved purposes. You have all these covenants. What for? Some conditional, some unconditional. You have unappeased longings. The poetical books are full of things they're yearning for that have yet to be fulfilled. And the prophecies, of course, are uh, incomplete. It's important to really taste and appreciate the fact that the Old Testament is incomplete by itself. There's something missing. And what's missing, of course, is the, Old, is the New Testament. Jesus challenges you in John 5.39. He says, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And He's referring to the Old Testament to them when He's, talk, when he's saying that. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of what? Me. That's His boast. And indeed they do. And when you discover that for yourself, it'll change your whole perspective. We talked a little bit about the history of the English Bible, how the Hebrew Verlaga became translated into Greek, the Septuagint Greek. The Council of Yamnia led to the Masoretic text, but meanwhile the Greek text primarily, and some some of the old Latin stuff led to the Textus Receptus, which uh, uh, Jerome rendered into the Vulgate, and ultimately the Textus Receptus becomes the primary set of documents for the King James. The King James translators, uh, just like Tyndale, they had about 5,000 different manuscripts. They leaned heavily on the so-called the, the received text, as they say. But, uh, but the problem was that the Alexandrian texts, um, which were uh, highly venerated for some reasons, led to many of the new translations, NIV and others. But in more recent years they recognized the Alexandrian texts were uh, tampered with by the Gnostics which is causing many scholars to go back and, re- and, and respect more highly the, the Textus Receptus sources. But uh, we talked a little bit about that. We don't have to dwell on it here. We got to the New Testament. Again, it has five books up front, just like the Torah does in the Old Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Luke in two volumes. Luke and Acts. Instead of, but instead of Deuteronomy, which is Moses' epistles, we have Paul's 13 epistles plus eight so-called uh, uh, Hebrew Christian epistles. Well, one I believe by Paul, and then the others that are written by written for by and for the Jewish believers: James, First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Jude. And having gone through all that, then of course we hit our capstone, the Book of Revelation, which wraps it all up in a climactic form. 
But the Old Testament prophecies that are quoted in the Gospels are astonishing. That, it, that the Messiah would be of David's family. He'd be born of a virgin. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be sojourn in Egypt. He would live in Galilee and in, specifically in Nazareth. He'd be announced by an Elijah-like herald. He would occasion the massacre of Bethlehem's children. He would, they would, he would proclaim a jubilee to the world. His mission would include the Gentiles. The secret that we're going to talk about is not the role of the Gentiles, it's something else. Many people misunderstand the fact that his mission would include the Gentiles is all through Isaiah and other places. His ministry would be one of healing. He would teach throughout parables. He would be disbelieved and rejected by his rulers. That was predicted in Psalm 69 and 118 and Isaiah 6, 29 and elsewhere, 53. He would make a triumphal entry in Jerusalem. In fact, riding a donkey, Zechariah tells us. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be smitten like a shepherd. He'd be given vinegar and gall. They would cast lots for his garments. His side would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. He would die among malefactors, other criminals. His uh, dying words were foretold. He would be buried by a rich man. He would rise from the dead on the third day. That's all through the scripture. His resurrection would be followed by destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, on it goes. So it's amazing. Now when we get to the Gospels, we discovered and we talked about how they're structured. That Matthew being a Jew presents, emphasizes his presence as a Messiah. And uh, that uh, Mark, his emphasis is that he's a servant. So he has no genealogy, no pedigree. Matthew has a, a, a genealogy starting from the first Jew, from Abraham down through the legal line. Luke being a doctor focuses on him as a son of man, his humanity. His genealogy starts with Adam, and he goes down through the bloodline, which turns out to be Mary. And John has a genealogy, but it's hard to recognize because he's a son of God. He has a genealogy of the pre-existent one. And, uh, and so Jesus, Matthew emphasizes what Jesus said, very Jewish. Mark, what he did. Luke, what he felt. John, who he was. And uh, characteristically, Matthew ends with a very Jewish thing, the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends up with a promise of the Holy Spirit, which sets him up for his sequel, the book of Acts. John cl- closes his book with the promise of his return, and he sets up his sequel, the book of Revelation. And uh, they also, interestingly enough, exemplify the four faces we see around the throne of God, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, as symbols of the Messiah, the servant, the son of man, the son of God. Interesting enough. Well, the book of Acts, of course, had all the many key facts, the ascension, the, pen, the, the birth of the church, the first martyr, the stoning of Stephen, Philip and the Ethiopian treasure, which has uh, uh, secrets to it that are still being revealed. And then uh, we have the call of Saul of Tarsus. Both Sauls in the Bible were Benjamites, but this Saul becomes Paul and becomes the, uh, an incredible human being, one of the most brilliant people to walk the earth. Peter's vision at Cornelius opens the gospel to the Gentiles, something that was unthought of in some respects, became a big controversy for a while. The mission of the Gentiles is really focused on in chapters 11 to 14 in Acts, climaxing in the famous Council for Jerusalem, in which uh, James by then has become a believer and a leader of the church there, and that gets resolved. And then we get into the missionary journals, journeys, three of them. The first throughout Galatia, the second one uh, uh, to Europe, Athens, Mars Hill, the third one recounting the first one just to strengthen those churches. But as, the, as Acts comes to a close, we have the growing outcry against Paul before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, before King Agrippa, where Paul finally plays his trump card, he appeals to Rome. That brings him to Rome, 
in which much is accomplished, interesting enough, primarily because of the letters Paul wrote while he was there. Treasures, every one of them. Pauline epistles. It's so important we took Romans, we took a full hour on Romans because it's the definitive statement of Christian doctrine, the gospel according to Paul, as some people would call it. But then we went through the others, First and Corinthians, order in the church, Galatians, law versus grace, Ephesians, the mystery of the church. It was Paul's privilege to reveal something that was hidden in the Old Testament. He makes that point. And many people who have a problem in eschatology, the study of the last things, the real problem is that they haven't done their homework about ecclesiology. They don't understand what makes the church distinctive from all other periods of history. Believers that uh, are members of the church have privileges and aspects that were not available to the Old Testament or those that are the, or after the rapture. There's a very strange set of benefits that we have we need to understand. And uh, Philippians, of course, is resources in suffering. Colossians, Christ's preeminence about all things. Thessalonians are the the eschatological epistles. We left those for the next for the final session, or next to the final session, to be part of an eschatological review. And then T- Timothy and Titus be uh, basically uh, letters to pastors. Second Timothy is particularly remarkable. It's Paul's last letter, and Paul is about to die. He knows he is, and he's encouraging Timothy. I think it's, it sounds a little backwards, doesn't it? Incredible guy, incredible letter. And just precious, precious letters. And Philemon is a little gem, a little tiny gem, explaining intercession. And uh, it's, 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 it's almost like a miniature. I always think of every uh, uh, art gallery has somewhere in there, no matter how many great things they have, they always have room for some little special miniature. And Philemon is, is that sort of uh, uh, treasure. Then the, uh, the non-Pauline epistles that are sometimes looked at are the Hebrew Christian epistles. It uh, starts with Hebrews. It's unsigned. I believe it was written by Paul, but that's neither here nor there. It, it really emphasized the new covenant. It makes an argument for the Messiahship of Christ without relying on his apostolic position, strictly with rabbinical arguments from the Old Testament, contrasting the Messiah with angels, the Levitical priesthood, uh, all, the, all the contrasts. In each case, laying out how Christ is preeminent over all of those things. James, his brother, writes a letter that's very practical. If you've got faith, let's see it demonstrated. Many people misunderstand his epistle. I think he's talking about faith with works. He's no, no, he, if you have faith, he expects to see it demonstrated by works. You're not saved by faith. You're sa- I mean, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by faith. But if you have real faith, it should be bearing fruit. So he's a fruit inspector. First Peter's focusing on the persecuted church. Second Peter's is focusing on the coming apostasy, just as Jude will. And uh, very important epistles today, very descriptive of today. John's epistle is one of those masterpieces. John's First John is um, really sermon notes on love. Incredible, incredible letter. Second John is a surprise to many because I believe you can prove it was written to Mary. But it, one of the subjects it touches on are false teachers. And uh, Third John is just a short little letter having to do with the preparation of helpers. And Jude is a fascinating final little letter on apostasy, but it includes so many allusions and so much comment on the Old Testament that it's, uh, it gives us illumination of all kinds of issues beyond the ones that we, he was making directly. And so that, uh, that's, here's a quick summary of it. In the Old Testament we have Christ in prophecy which says, Behold He comes. The Gospels as Christ in history, behold he dies. 
Acts is Christ in the church. It says in effect, behold, he lives. The epistles are Christ in experience. Behold, he saves and sanctifies. And the apocalypse is Christ coming in glory. Behold, he reigns. So that's the buildup. And of course, the divine outline of the last book of the Bible is in verse 19 of the first chapter. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's the vision of Christ that, shows, that opens the first chapter. The things which are, which are seven letters and seven churches that we reviewed in some, in some depth. Chapters 2 and 3. The most important chapters for you and me probably in the book. And the things which shall be metatauta hereafter. The things which follow after those things which, which, which were the churches. So that's the divine outline. And we talked about the seven letters and we were intrigued how they parallel the seven kingdom parables of Matthew 13. And uh, we also, uh, uh, the sower and the four soils, uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the fruit of the, the apostolic period. We have uh, Pergamos and the mustard seed, where the mustard seed grows to be a tree that even becomes a, a haven for the birds, which were the enemies of Satan in the earlier parables. Thyatira, the woman in the leaven. Thyatira having the Jezebel and the false doctrine. Uh, the Philadelphia, the pearl of great price. How Philadelphia is the, the church that was raptured. The pearl of great price being a very strange idiom for a Jewish rabbi to use to Jewish disciples. Because uh, oysters are not kosher. But the pearl is a jewel that is a response to irritation. That it grows by accretion and is removed from its place of growth to become an item of adornment. A very apt description of the church, interestingly enough. And uh, anyway, each one of these parallels are instructive to consider for yourself. Check them out, see what you think. It's also interesting to know that Paul wrote seven churches. He wrote 13 signed epistles, but three of those were doubles, first and second, whatever. Well, Ephesus is pretty straightforward. Paul's uh, caution to Ephesus was certainly heeded by Ephesus by the time Jesus writes. The only trouble was they had lost their first love. Smyrna is the, the suffering church, and of course Philippians is rejoice, uh, resources in suffering. Pergamos was a church that married the world, and that of course is idiomatic of Corinthians. And uh, Thyatira, Galatians, Sardis, Romans, Philadelphia, Thessalonians, the eschatological church and the eschatological epistles, and Laodicea and Colossians, and Colossians was indeed the remedy for Laodicea, and they happened to be suburbs of one another. So they instructed to exchange letters. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, is there something to that? You can only find out by studying yourself and coming to your own conclusions. These are just observations that, uh, for your consideration. But it's interesting that these seven letters, seven churches are interesting in that they um, are not only local real churches, not only are they advice for all churches, but they're also advice personally, in a personal homiletic sense. But they're also prophetic. In the order they happen to be placed, the main theme of each one fits church history. Ephesus was the apostolic church. Um, diligent on doctrine, but ultimately failed to, to stay devotionally committed. Smyrna was the persecuted church, the suffering church. Smyrna means myrrh, if you will. And Pergamos was the married church, the one that had this perverted marriage, marrying the, the, when the church married the world. Big mistake. Which led, of course, to the medieval church in which you have the queen of heaven running things, you have inquisitions, the whole description of Tyre Tyre is astonishingly descriptive of the medieval church, out of which, of course, comes a reformation, but really denominationalism. And Sardis is one of the two letters that has nothing good said about it. And Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two letters that had nothing bad said about it. 
four of the letters were, all of them were surprised, I suspect, but uh, two of them had nothing good said about them, two of them had nothing um, bad said about them. Nothing. So I think there's a real lesson here. I think all of us, if we really understood, would be surprised. Philadelphia, of course, the missionary church, it's one of the ones that had nothing bad said about it, very encouraging. And Laodicea was the apostate church. What's interesting about these seven letters is the first three have the promise to the overcomer as a postscript. And the last four have the promises of the overcomer in the body of the letter. So they're distinctive in that sense. The other, also, these last four include explicit references to the Lord's second coming, interestingly enough. And so one of them, Thyatira, is promised to be that it will go into the Great Tribulation. That's a disturbing event. One of them is promised that it would not see the time of trial or tribulation that's coming on the earth. And uh, so one of the things, you, uh, what happens to Sardis and Laodicea is problematical. So I guess it'll depend on the individuals, of course. So anyway, uh, we then went, uh, we, we went to a review of eschatology in our summary. Um, amillennialism, premillennialism, we pointed out that your view of eschatology will really derive from your hermeneutics. If you have a very tight hermeneutic, if you have a very high view of inspiration, if you take the Bible very literally, you will lean to the right side of this diagram. You'll tend to be premillennial for sure and very likely pre-tribulational. That is, you'll believe that the, tribula- that the church will be pulled out before the tribulation begins. There are many uh, uh, people who are premillennial but they try to be post-tribulational. They think that the church is going to go through the tribulation. And it's our view that that, uh, that has too many problems. But in any case, um, if you have a willingness to allegorize, if you treat these things just symbolically, if you treat the Bible as just a collection of instructive lessons rather than any uh, hard truth, you'll tend to be uh, to the left side of this diagram. You'll tend to be amillennial, as most churches are, most denominations are amillennial. And uh, and, uh, and post-tribulational. Uh, the ultimate form of amillennialism is preterism. You see, many Christian leaders are saying, "Well, it's all been, it's all was fulfilled long ago," because they don't have a willingness to take the, the scripture tightly. We believe God means what He says and says what He means. Well, we talked about the whole the 70th week of Daniel on that on that fabric. We point out that the 70th week is defined by the covenant being enforced by this world leader. In the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to violate that the covenant by setting himself up to be worshipped. And uh, that triggers a three and a half year period that is labeled by Jesus himself as the Great Tribulation. And that is interrupted, of course, by the second coming. The dilemma comes among many. When does the rapture take place? Many feel, well, it comes near the end. They don't discern the difference between the rapture and the second coming. We think that discernment is very clear in the scripture, which causes us to look at one of the other places. We, we tend to have the view, it doesn't mean we're right, but we, have, we believe that the, the uh, rapture will occur prior to the beginning of the seventh week, maybe by some distance. We don't know if the interval between the rapture and the, sev- the beginning of the seventh week is a day or 30 years, but we think there is an interval there because the seventh week is defined by a treaty enforced by this world leader. He can't enforce that treaty until he's in power. He can't be in power until after he's revealed, and, uh, he, and he can't be revealed until the rapture. So if the rapture comes first... He then gets revealed and comes to power. That could be one day or it could be 30 years. We don't know. But in any case, uh, that's, that's where we are. Now there are some people who are sort of in between pre and post. They call themselves mid-trib, meaning the tribulation isn't really, is really three and a half years, not seven. But some people use, speak of a seven-year tribulation to, to, as a connotative term. And uh, the mid-trib guys understand they, that uh, they will be out before the abomination of desolation. 
but the, but the, uh, these other views, both mid and post, deny have to end up denying eminency. Clearly, the New Testament teaches to expect him at any moment, which is an argument for pre-tribulationism. So that's that's at least the profile that many have. The apocalypse, of course, is uh, a catastrophic end crisis of the present time we're in. I believe we're plunging into that. We're going to see the uh, spectacular reappearance of the King of Kings and his global empire. And uh, we're going to see the internment of Satan in the Abuso and the millennial earth reign of Jesus Christ. Both the Old and New Testament are full of. Then we'll, at the end of that thousand years we'll see a final insurrection and the abolition of sin. That's when it finally gets wrapped up and we'll see a new heaven and a new earth. That's sort of the quick summary of the book of Revelation in total. Something that else, as we stand back from our studies and try to put this all in perspective, let's take a look at Genesis first Revelation. In Genesis, the earth was created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis, we have the sun to govern the day. In Revelation, we have no need for the sun. The darkness he called night in Genesis, there is no night there in Revelation. Waters he called the seas, there is no more sea in Revelation, interestingly enough. A river for the earth's blessing and a river for the new earth in, Genesis, in Revelation. In Genesis, we have the earth's government, that is, through Israel. And uh, in Revelation, we're going to see the earth's judgment. One's the earth's government, one's the earth's judgment in terms of Israel. Man in God's image in Genesis, man headed by Satan's image shows up in Revelation. The entrance of sin is in Genesis, the end of sin is in Revelation. The curse is pronounced in Genesis, there is no more curse in Revelation. Death enters in Genesis 3, there is no more death in Revelation. And uh, man is driven out of Eden in Genesis 3, man is restored in Revelation 22. The tree of life is guarded in Genesis, the right to the tree of life is reestablished in Revelation 22. Sorrow and suffering enter in, in uh, Genesis 3. There is no more sorrow in Revelation 22. Nimrod founds Babylon in Genesis 10. Babylon falls in chapter 17 and 18. God's flood destroys evil generation in Genesis. Satan's flood tries to destroy the elect generation in Revelation 12. And uh, there's a bow, a token of, of God's promise in Genesis 9. There's a bow for remembrance in Revelation 4 and 10. Sodom and Egypt uh, represent corruption and judgment in Genesis 13. Sodom and Egypt, that is Jerusalem, uh, show up in Revelation 11 representing those things. A confederation is against Adam's people in Genesis 14. A confederation is against Adam's seed in Revelation 12. There's a bride for Abraham's son in Genesis 24. There's a bride for Abraham's seed in Revelation 21, marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage of the first Adam occurs in Revelation 2. The marriage of the last Adam occurs in Revelation 19. Man's dominion ceases and Satan's begun in Genesis 3.24. Satan's domain ends and man is restored in Revelation 22. So it's intricate. I mention this as you stand back. You can tell it's all designed on purpose. And uh, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. One book. There are two basic discoveries we've tried to emphasize in this excursion. That the Bible, although it consists of 66 separate books penned by over 40 guys over a period of several thousand years, is an integrated message system. Not only the themes, every word, every place name, even the mathematical structures that hide underneath the text 
demonstrate a very, very skillful integrated design. If that's true, you got a second discovery. You can then demonstrate that the origin of this message, message had to come from outside our dimensions of space-time. You can demonstrate. You can't prove the Bible. Yes, you can. If you can demonstrate the integrity of the design in the first place, and then demonstrate that that design had to emerge from outside the time, time domain. Uh, you've got a very, very... You've, you've demonstrated a property that no other book on the planet Earth has. Uh, this, super, this demonstrable supernatural origin. Not a claim, a demonstration. The central theme is that the Old Testament is the account of a nation, the New Testament is the account of a man. Their creator became a man, his appearance is the central event of all history. He died to purchase us and he's alive now. And our most exalted privilege is to know him. That's what the Bible is really all about, is to know him. They say that there are over 8,000, this is just one categorization by J. Barton Payne, other people have different ones, but he, he categorized over 8,000 predictive verses and over almost 2,000 predictions on 700 different matters. I happen to disagree with him, I think it's all prophecy, but that's, you know, another thing. One of the things that you quickly determine as you try to compare what you know about your Bible and what's going on in the world is that there are major themes emerging. If you want to know what time it is in God's clock, you look at Israel. Find out what's going on in Israel, you can tell because Israel's origin, its ups, its downs, and its ultimate destiny are all laid out in advance. If you want to find out what time it is, check out where Israel is. The city of Jerusalem, a bone in the throat among all major nations today, exactly like Zechariah predicted. Watch Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt. You can't see any evidence of it yet. In fact, quite the contrary. The Muslims are quite aggressively with bulldozers trying to destroy all evidence of all Jewish evidence on the site. But we know it's going to be rebuilt. How do we know? Because Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to it standing at the end times. The city of Babylon is going to reemerge, we believe, on world, in world history. And this is, these, this is an exciting thing to watch because I think you're going to see it reemerge on the horizon. And when you do, that's going to be an incredible witnessing opportunity as people start to take notice. And of course Russia, the, the Magogians if you will, there are people in the strategic community that believe that Russia is uh, on the threshold of, of uh, shenanigans in the Middle East. We'll watch that with great interest. The rise of China is the major economic and military power on the horizon. Europe and China are going to be the big players over the coming decades. The past 50 years it was Russia and the USS, it was the USSR and the USA. But uh, in the coming decades it's clearly going to be China and the European superstate. The UN is on frail ground. People are saying there needs to be an alternative to the UN and it probably will emerge in the form of the European Union. Watch and see. It'll either take it over or, or simply be a rival. And while all this is going on the movement towards a one-world religion. It's astonishing to see how many Christian leaders are falling for this ecumenical mania that's going on. Ecumenicalism. Park truth at the door. Let's just all, all agree that we're going to agree. And this is in the context of a global government, which has to happen because of the proliferation of nuclear weapons, the rise of terrorism, all of these are global issues. And the, the thinking people are recognizing that it's going to take global supervision to deal with these issues. And while all this is going on, we have the rise of the occult. How interesting it is that we live in an age of materialism. As people have rejected God and embraced materialism, 
both in terms of their lifestyles and also in terms of their philosophies. And as they discover materialism is morally bankrupt, what do they turn to? To mysticism. And how interesting it is that in this enlightened age with, with the, the advancements of science and all that sort of thing, we find that increasingly people at all levels of society, not just the disenfranchised, are turning to mysticism. How fascinating it is. All these are major themes that we tried to map and track. And, uh, but our challenge to you in this course has not been just to learn the Bible. What I want you to do is challenge this preposterous statement. The statement is that we're being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than about any other period of time in history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee and climbed the mountains of Judea. That is an audacious statement. Some would say preposterous. Great. Don't accept it. Challenge it. How do you do that? You've got to do two things. One, find out what the Bible says. Not what Chuck Missler or Hal Lindsey or Chuck Smith or whoever your favorite teacher is. No. Find out what the Bible says, point one. Point two, find out what's going on. And you won't on the 10 o'clock news. You need to do a little homework. But with internet, the alternative press, talk radio, you can today find out that the stranglehold by the mass media is, be, is, is, uh, is being broken. Their overt attempt by pr- promoting know- knowingly, deliberately promoting falsehoods, trying to topple a sitting president during a time of war, has discredited virtually all, almost all, of the mainline media. And uh, with the exception of Fox News, I think they're all caught their, they all have their hands dirty with having prostituted their franchise. The franchise of the mass media is to inform the electorate that these are people that take pride in shaping opinion rather than informing them. And they, they, they deliberately indulged indulge in deceit. And so that's going, that comes home to roost. So the point is, most thinking people recognize they've got, it takes a little homework to find out what's really going on in the Middle East, in Europe, China, uh, wherever. Find out what's happening. And the more you know about what the Bible says, and the more you know about what's going on in the world, the more you'll see a convergence, not by one or two things, by all of them. And uh, pretty exciting times. But the ultimate issue is that you and I are in possession of a message of extraterrestrial origin. And it portrays us as objects of an unseen warfare. And our eternal destiny, yours and mine, depends upon our relationship with the ultimate victor in this cosmic conflict. It does not uh, depend upon what church you go to. It doesn't depend on what denomination you happen to have allegiance to. Our eternal destiny depends upon our relationship with Him, the ultimate victor in this conflict. And the question you need to ask yourself is where do you stand with respect to Him? He's what it's all about. Now people ask you, Chuck, that's great. How do I study? Well, first of all, two things. Through prayer and through a relationship with the author. The important thing here is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to pursue that relationship diligently, uh, uh, faithfully. One of the things you need to do when you study your Bible is set aside your presuppositions. We all bring to any study presumptions, presuppositions, blindfold them, put them aside, go at it with an open mind and hear what the Scripture says. I also encourage you to take notes. I really wish I had been more thorough in my early years taking notes. I'm doing it in more recent years, but build your own reservoir of your own notes and insights. And uh, along that line, let me tell you another secret. One of the things I encourage you to do is go to a stationery store and get a journal. 
You girls know what I'm talking about. The guys haven't the foggiest notion of what I'm talking about. In a stationery store, you typically can find a bound book, not a loose leaf, a bound book that's maybe blank or lined, your preference, that's designed to be a personal diary, a journal. And the girls are fond of doing this. Guys usually don't bother. But I'm going to encourage you to undertake a secret journal. This is a journal that you're not going to ever show anybody. And that's important because I want you to be honest. I want you to be candid. This isn't something you're going to ever show anybody. This is private. I want you to be able to pour out yourself that no one will ever overlook your shoulder overlook uh, uh, your shoulder to see it. Um, and what I want you to do, and you might want to do this with your prayer life too, by the way. It's an exciting thing when you pray is to make a, keep a journal. Write down what you pray about. And when he fulfills it, make a note. You'll be astonished. Too often we pray for something and when it happens we sort of take it for granted. No. Make, make a journal. Take a journal. In fact, you shouldn't pray without a pad. You ever notice, if you've been a, me- a member of a large corporation, when the boss asks the secretary to come in his office, you never see her enter his office without a pad. That's considered, you know, that's a, a sharp secretary will always carry a pad. The presumption is she's going to get an assignment. And when you go to prayer, do you, t- do you have a pad? When God's speaking to you, do you make a note? But there's something else about this journal I want you to think about. How many of you have ever encountered a passage in the Bible that was confusing or self-contradictory or you didn't understand? Can I see your show of hands? Okay, anybody without their hand up that hasn't read their Bible, right? You always, we all have. We all have. Here's what I want you to do. When you encounter something that makes no sense, jump for joy. Because you have now an opportunity to conduct an empirical experiment in the supernatural. An actual laboratory. You know, it's interesting, if, if, if you're an engineer or in a technical field, you know that most of what you learned in college was in the lab courses. When you got your hands on, you actually did it. Not the theory and the equations. When you read it, that's where it came, that's where it came real. Well, here's a chance to conduct a laboratory course in the supernatural. What you do, when you encounter a passage that makes no sense, you get your journal, get a blank page, put the date down, put the reference, and here's the important part. You do this in ink, not pencil. Try to write down why that passage is confusing or apparently contradictory, why it just doesn't seem to make sense. And try to be as thorough and as, 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 as effective as you can. Then when you've done that, you set that aside and you go to prayer. Go before the throne. Say, Father, you've promised that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things. And this passage confuses me. I don't understand it. It, it seems to be, it doesn't make any sense. It seems to contradict uh, whatever. You, you, take it before him and remind him that he promised that he would teach you all things. And call his claim. You claim that. Call him on that. And then watch what happens. Now, it may not happen in the next 10 seconds. It may be the next day. It might be, who knows? What's going to happen, though, you may be reading somewhere else in the Bible. And suddenly the insight will come. Or maybe you'll be driving and you'll be listening to some radio speaker. And he may not even be talking about the subject, but he'll say something that will cause an insight. Or you might be in a, in a restaurant and you'll overhear a conversation at another table. I don't know what instrument the Holy Spirit will use, but what He's going to do in the, in the reasonable time forthcoming, He will make that problem so clear. You now need to go back to your journal, find that page and the bottom, put the date and explain how the Holy, what medium the Holy Spirit used to make that, to, re, to let that fog lift, to get rid of that cloud, to let you see the reality of that. Now you're probably saying, gee Chuck, that sounds like great fun, but um, why all the paperwork? I'll tell you why. Because the day is going to come 
when you are going to go through the valley of doubt, dark times, and you'll begin to question that, is this all really real? Uh, uh, have I gotten just carried away with all, whatever. I want you to be able to go back to that journal and look at the footprints of the Holy Spirit as He carried you item by item as your personal tutor, not Chuck Missler or whoever, the Holy Spirit taking you through your Christian walk step by step in a supernatural way. That journal will become one of your most precious products. You never show it to anybody. The reason you don't want to do that is you want it private. You want to be able to communicate with complete openness without any mask or facades or whatever. And uh, it will be precious to the extent that you're candid with it. Well, the other thing I'm going to suggest, uh, how many of you have a hobby? Anybody here? How many here have hobbies? See, uh, uh, oh, good, okay. Now, I, I'm going to tell you a couple of things about your, that are probably true about your hobby. You probably know more about your hobby than you do your profession because it's a labor of love. I mean, that's what you're into, whatever, right? Tell you something else about your hobby. You probably have more invested in it than you want your wife to find out, okay? I have a suggestion that may sound strange, but I have a suggestion. You know, Ben Franklin said... Jack of all tra- his concept was jack of all trades, master of one. He's always misquoted. Jack of all trades, master of none is the way you usually hear it. That's not what he said. He said jack of all trades, master of one. What his concept was for an educated person is an educated person should know something about everything and everything about something. That was his concept. And that's a good idea. For a Christian, that something should be the Bible. If you're a Christian, you can know a lot about anything. You can know something about everything, but you should know everything there is to know about the Bible. So I'm going to suggest you do that. Set out to make the Bible your hobby. You don't have to supersede all the others, but it certainly should come ahead of the others in the sense of your priorities. What do I mean by making a hobby? Well, first of all, invest in it. Go to a Christian bookstore and pick up some helps. A good exhaustive concordance. Find out what an exhaustive concordance is and go get one. They're not expensive. Get a, a Bible dictionary or a Bible encyclopedia, one-volume set or a five-volume set. They're not expensive, even the big ones. Um, and if you're computer literate, the, the Bible software that's out is astonishing. You don't need to know Hebrew and Greek to use Hebrew and Greek. It'll, diagram, it'll translate for you. It'll diagram the sentences for you. Uh, the, the, the Bible software that's around is available. It, it, it's incredible. I, uh, I travel with over 3,000 volumes on my, on my disk drive, in my laptop. You say, Chuck, that's a lot of volumes. Yes, but it's, it's better than being in my library. I've got books in my library I'd never, I couldn't read in a lifetime. But these are word searchable. If I want to find out what Irenaeus said about love, it'll tell me. If I have a passage, it'll open all those books to the path, any pages that are relevant to that inquiry. And it does in a few seconds. I can do in a half an hour what would take, what used to take me a whole weekend of study because it's, it's all automatic. Cross-reference in, tri- in ways. It, it, will, it will take articles and summarize them for me. Auto-abstracting software. It's, it's astonishing what's available to you if you, if you uh, c- can use those appliances. So invest in helps. Now there's ex- exegetical helps. Those are helps that help you understand what the text says. Exegesis is what does the Greek or the Hebrew say? You have to know what it says before you can tell you what it means. Once you know what it says, then you can explore what it, 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 it is trying to say in, 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 semantically. That's called exposition. Exegetical, exegetical analysis is to understand the, 
the tools there are grammar and lexicon, in effect. Translate, check, check the translation. What does it really mean? And when, what kind of figure of speech is being used if it is, and so forth. The exposition is thinking, what's the significance of that particular passage there, etc. And, uh, but there are helps of all kinds, and indulge in them. You'll quickly discover some of your favorites. Certain guys will just you'll relate to. Some of them are very wordy, but boy, they're rich. Others are very terse and pointed. And, uh, but they're all different styles, different strokes for different folks. But the real issue that I want to close on before we finish our little excursion here is that the Bible's about a person, and I want to tell you about him. I was inspired by this by Pastor S.D. Lockridge down in San Diego. He passed away now, but his, he did a little thing that caught my attention, and I've done my version of it, but I really, I'm indebted to him for this basic idea. Who I want to tell you about my, our coming king. You know, I, I often get invited to speak at governor's elections, especially in election year, governor's breakfast, that sort of thing. Uh, they never invite me back. Because um, I quickly point out I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm a monarchist. And I, but I tell him about my candidate. You see, he's a racial king. That shocks him. Jesus was Jewish. He's king of the Jews. Let's not forget that. He is the king of Israel. He's a national king. He's not just some kind of religious figure. He is going to rule the world through Israel. So he's racial and national king. He is the king of all the ages, the king of heaven, the king of glory, and the king of kings and lord of lords. The question is, do you know him? Do you really know Him? That's the issue here, not quoting verses and all these other things. He was a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua. He was an offering in the place of Isaac. He was a king from the line of David. He's a wise counselor even above Solomon. He was beloved and rejected, but then exalted son like Joseph. Yet, he's far more. The heavens declare His glory. The ferment shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and always will be. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the, a, the aleph and the tau, the A and the Z. He's the first fruits of them that slept. He's the ego I me, the ichyach asher ichyach, the I am that I am. Yes, he was the voice of the burning bush. He so claimed in John 8. He's the captain of the Lord's host. He was the conqueror of Jericho. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful, imperially powerful, impartially merciful. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the very God of very God. He is our kinsman redeemer indeed, as we learned in Ruth, but He's also our avenger of blood. He's our city of refuge. He's our performing high priest, our personal prophet, our reigning king. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the supreme problem of higher criticism. <laughs> He's the miracle of all the ages, the superlative of everything good. You and I are beneficiaries of a love letter. That love letter was written in blood on a wooden cross that was erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. They say He was crucified on a cross of wood, yet He made the hill on which it stood. By Him were all things made that were made. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And by Him are all things held together, Paul tells us in Colossians. i got a question. What held Him to that cross? 
What held him to that cross? It wasn't the nails. At any time he could have said, enough already, I'm out of here. What held him to that cross? His love for you and me. That's what held him to the cross. He was born of a woman so that we could be born again, born of God. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made joint heirs with him. We have no idea what that means. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He's available to the tempted and tried. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. He defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. He forgives the sinners. He franchises the meek. He guards the besieged. He heals the sick. He provides strength to the weak. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He sympathizes and and he saves. He's incredible. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. I wish I could describe Him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. And of course He's invincible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain Him. Man cannot explain Him. The Pharisees couldn't stand Him, but soon learned they couldn't stop Him. The personal representative of the ruler of the world couldn't find any fault with Him. The witnesses could not agree against Him. Herod couldn't kill Him. Death couldn't handle Him. The grave couldn't hold Him. He has always been and always will be. He had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. You can't impeach Him and He ain't going to resign. His name is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, some of you may be asking, uh, great, what do I do now? We've gone through Learn the Bible in 24 hours. Where you can go from here would be to pick a book, any book, and go at it verse by verse on your own or with a commentary, whatever. Do whatever, however energetic you want to be. And of course we have helps that will help you. With CD-ROMs are very inexpensive, a lot, lot cheaper than they used to be with tapes and so forth. We also have topical studies on over a hundred different subjects, but that's not uh, the, uh, uh, the only way to go. I encourage you to go the expositional route. It's the most fruitful, I think, over the years. But um, the other resources I want you to be, available, uh, be aware of that we have available We have an internet site that I encourage you to check out. It's one of the oldest, largest Christian websites on the internet. And no one can pronounce Koinonia House, let alone spell it. Everyone calls us K-House, so it's khouse.org, K-H-O-U-S-E.org. We monitor the strategic trends and we try to highlight those things that are going on that are biblically relevant. We publish a free weekly one-pager you sign up for it, we'll email you every week a little one page that lists the things that have happened this week that's biblically relevant and it gives you the link of the websites that are following that particular development competently. Uh, just give it a try. Give it a try. But our primary goal is to try to encourage you to participate in a home Bible fellowship. 
the people over 50 years of study, the people I've seen that really grow, grow in small face-to-face accountable groups that meet during the week. Sunday church, great, I'm not knocking that, but that won't be enough. Get find check check out your professional associates or your neighborhood. They're all different kinds. Find one, give it a try. If you can't find one you like, start one. We'll help you. That's what we're all about. That's us. Uh, check us out. And if there's any way we can help, we want to hear about it. God bless you.